Hello and welcome to the Wholehearted Healer Podcast. My name is Dr. Avine Banish and I will be your host. This is the weekly podcast that helps women pause in their busy lives, drop into the heart, and remember their next right step. I am so happy that you're here. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of a Wholehearted Healer podcast. My name is Dr. Avine Banish, and I'm your host. This week, I had the pleasure of interviewing Lieutenant Colonel Rob Marshall of the United States Air Force. Rob is a friend of mine. He is one of the most infectiously positive people you will ever meet. He is also the co-founder of the USAF Seven Summits Challenge. Our conversation delved into the healing power of being in nature and really the mystical experience of being in nature. And Rob's dream of bringing this healing, transformative power of being in nature to the U.S. military. My hope after listening is that you are called out into nature yourself, that you find your favorite trail, your favorite wooded area, um, or maybe your backyard, and you just connect with the spirit of the earth in a way that is healing and transformative for you. So thanks for listening. Here we go. Hello and welcome to another episode of a Wholehearted Healer podcast. I'm really excited today um, because I'm going to have a great conversation with someone who I believe is just doing great work on the planet, Lieutenant Colonel Rob Marshall. I'm really excited to have him here and to just see where, where our conversation takes us. So welcome, Rob. Thanks a lot, Avine. It's good to be here. It's great to see you. Rob and I met um, in Colorado Springs through our mutual amazing um, chiropractor who even to call him that seems like, um, I don't know, he's so much more than that. But uh, I think that we've both been really helped and um, by his work. And it's just been really fun to get to know Rob a little bit. And I'll get to know him more today on this podcast. So Rob, I'm wondering to begin, um, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, about your background. Um, you are a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Air Force. And so wherever you want to begin, just to tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, Aveen, um, you're right. It's hard to describe our mutual friend, Tad. It's just a chiropractor. I consider him more of a energy worker. Yeah. And it's been really uh, special to get to kind of know you through our shared experiences in there. And, um, when you asked if I would be interested in, in speaking on your podcast, I was like, yeah, like she gets it. I I've seen how your body moves. I know the, the energy you bring into a room and I know the hard work you've done. So that's why I think this is a real good fit. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful for, for the opportunity. Um, Let's see, I moved to the Springs four years ago to teach at the Air Force Academy. Uh, I uh, am a native of the Seattle, Washington area, and I grew up there until I joined the military uh, in 1997. It's kind of hard to believe it was a while ago. I, I went to the Air Force Academy for college and then um, I just finished my 20th year in the military, most of that on active duty with a little bit of time as a reservist, which means you're kind of a part-timer. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I got into some pretty heavy stuff early. Uh, you know, it's kind of a weird, it's been a weird 20 years to look back on that I graduated in 2001. And so just three months after I graduated the Air Force Academy, we were at war. And just this, you know, in 2021 was the uh, quote unquote official end of it. So it's been interesting to look back on two decades of combat and how that's affected me not just my body, but my, uh, you know, my mind, my relationship with my soul. Um, but I will say that I've lived an exciting last 20 years, uh, from being a special operations pilot. I flew some pretty unique airplanes and some, uh, very hairy situations in Iraq, Afghanistan, North Africa. Um, and to keep me sane during those 20 years, you know, that, I started a, a nonprofit and a very unique challenge. I wanted to get more military members outdoors. It started with me needing to be outdoors because um, that's the only way that I could survive uh, the things that I saw and the loss of my friends and that energy. 
Um, and I, I expanded that to a point where, um, after climbing the highest mountain on every continent with military members, then the Air Force Academy asked me to come and uh, run a mountaineering program for them and teach outdoor leadership and start using nature with emotional intelligence. Uh, and it's been, it's just been a heck of a journey. So I think that's kind of just a real quick intro to who I've been in the last 20 years. Yeah, Rob. I mean, I will say like you bring such an energy and an enthusiasm to life into any room you come in to. Um, it's just fun to hear you kind of summarize a very full 20 years that way. And I guess where I would like to dig in here is just talking a little bit more about nature as therapy. We're lucky, you and I, to live in, in Colorado Springs where we have access to trails and just getting outside. But what do you, like, what do you notice for yourself? What's therapeutic for you being in nature? Can we just start mm. here? I think... I think there's uh, I can't remember if I was reading it somewhere or um, maybe it was a poem, but there was this idea of like reverential respect, like to have reverence for something, I think requires that thing to be almost greater than or equal to us. And, and um, I find that in nature ever since I was a child, so I was raised up in a, in a Episcopal family, which is like Catholic light, right? Like it's Catholic with it's Catholicism without all the sin. Uh, and I remember being in middle school and high school and spending my Sundays inside church and just daydreaming about uh, hiking and skiing. Those were the two sports that I, I did mostly outdoors. Um, and I, and I started kind of realizing that maybe these giant, uh, churches that we're in with all these beautiful colors, it seemed to me like they were trying to replace nature or replicate it. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started to kind of come into my own religious, spiritual relationship with nature, where I realized that it was the true, quote unquote, spoken word of the maker. Like no human needs to interpret the perfection of nature to me and tell me, oh, well, according to this book or this historical figure, right. this is why nature is important. It just nature was clear to me as like, if it was made by God or the universe, then I didn't need anyone to interpret it to me. It was perfect. So that in middle school and high school kind of laid the foundation for me to find reverence and this sense of awe in nature and even the tiniest, like at a blade of grass all the way to the cycles of nature. Um, and then when I got into the military, I found that not only was it kind of my spiritual headquarters, but it became this playground and, a, and a, a sandbox for me to experiment with risk management, with leadership, uh, with how far could I push myself and still make it back alive. And I, I now with time, I've realized that that's also was a really important place for me to excise, to excise my demons, to like get rid of this built up energy and this anger, and maybe even process like that heavy emotions that come, comes with being a military member. Um, yeah. What I hear you saying is, you know, a mystic is one who has direct experience. I mean, for me, that's the definition of mystic. And, and I love your description of, nature to me, it's direct experience, right? It's like, there's no in between, there's no intermediary. It's just you experiencing, um, and you being in, in doing so like fully able to experience yourself as well. I, I agree. I mean, and, and there's this, there's this, um, energy about nature that is perfection. And if nature is perfect, I mean, if everything that happens in nature is just the way it's supposed to be, especially when it's not molested or influenced by humans, then it gives this doer, like the doer in us, the action-oriented problem solver achiever, it lets the achiever, the doer relax and let go because nothing truly needs to be done other than, you know, putting on the right clothes and keeping yourself warm and dry. Um, nature, you could just sit in nature and it's, it's perfect. Like nothing needs to be done. And that was the antithesis. That was the opposite of what my life in the military was like, where everything is about achievement and everything is recorded. You know, 
every few months you're you're updating your boss on a piece of paper with your process your your performance report so that you can compete for the next rank um and so i found that uh nature gave me that opportunity to just kind of let some of those daily human um expectations fall off but i'll tell you what here here's a fun one and i've been chewing on this lately i also found that nature nature offered a lot of the same energies that combat offers military members. And I think this is why it can be so healing and nature has inherent risk in it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the further you get into the wild, the the more you've got to rely on your intuition and your skills to keep you alive, whether it be from animal predators or just hostile um, environments like Mm -hmm. snowstorms and high altitude or a raging river or a storm at sea. Uh, so there's like this really interesting challenge of putting yourself into the ring, into the crucible where you could be killed or you could survive. And I think a lot of people that are drawn to the military, uh, hunger for that. Um, and we hunger for the unknown. And that's one of the great things about nature is you don't know she could change on you in a heartbeat. And there's something exciting about that. Just like in war, we call that the fog of war where there's the unknown. But I think what I what I would summarize the most important thing for me in nature is it lacks one thing that combat in the military is abounds with. And that's malice. Like malice is something's intent to harm. And, and I don't see when I go up and I climb Pike's peak right outside my window, or I river raft the Arkansas or I go down Antarctica, you know, to go take people up a big mountain there. I, there's no malice. Like nature is not out to harm me. She's doing her own thing. And if I get caught up in it, that's my fault. But that's what makes nature healing. Whereas in combat, you're challenged and your five senses are put to work, but there's harm and like malintent. Someone wants to kill you or hurt you. And sadly, you often want to kill or hurt them. But in nature, that's the one thing that's lacking. There's no malice. A mama bear protecting its cub didn't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to go kill a human. It just says, I'm lovingly protecting my animals. And again, if you get mixed up with it, that's, that's kind of your fault. But that's the beauty of being to me of nature is it lacks malice, but gives us everything else that we might want to, to challenge ourselves and really experience being a human. Mm. Yeah, that's a really, and, and I love too. I mean, it does challenge us, right? It, it, it makes us, again, that sense of wholeness we have to bring all of ourselves, especially on, I mean, it's it's one thing when I'm taking a hike out my door. It's another thing when you're going down to Antarctica to climb something. There's a different level of risk, perhaps. But so so how did you get from knowing that this was your therapy, your church, to inherently maybe understanding that it could help others? You know, you broader the, can you kind of talk about how it, how it unfolded this whole path for you? Yeah. Yeah. I think there was a good pivotal time, uh, in my life that, that we can start at, um, in 2005, I was uh, doing some special operations work in a, in a country called Albania. And a lot of people don't know it, but it's the poorest country in Europe. Um, it's down on the Adriatic sea. Hopefully I, I said that right. It's rugged mountainous, uh, country. Um, and we were down there doing some training with their people and just using their mountains and airspace to train ourselves. And on my night off from flying, uh, nine friends were in kind of the the same type of airplane that I was flying at the time. And they crashed into a mountain range, um, that we had just flown the exact, the damn near the exact same route the night before. And they just had some problems and didn't make it over the top of the mountain. And it killed nine people, just like, just like me in the blink of an eye. And that started, that started a lot of things in my life, but really kind of helped remind me, or it didn't help remind me, it slapped me in the face that I am not indestructible. Like my life could have ended that night mm-hmm. if I had been on that plane. And a few months later, I found myself actually not a few months, gosh, a few years later, I was still dealing with their loss and kind of maybe a little bit of a sense of depression that I think came from some of that. And I ended up seeing a uh, mental health specialist in the military, which is usually pretty scary to do. 
Because as a pilot, you don't want to go see mental health because you're afraid they're going to make you not fly for a while or they'll take away your security clearance. But in my case, I was really struggling and I just knew I needed some help. So I went up and, and met this uh, therapist and it turned out he was great. He was a young guy my age um, and didn't mess around, just really got to know me. And, and he basically found out that nature was, was my medicine and I had not been taking my medicine. So he said to me, he's like, Rob, I'm giving you a prescription and it is, you're going to go hike Sandia Peak, which is the tallest peak, right? It's right on the edge of uh, the Albuquerque uh, city limits. And he's like, you need to hike that this weekend. And then I want you to tell me how it felt uh, when we meet next week. And of course that broke me out of my funk. It got me sweating and it got my endorphins going. And it kind of helped me realize that sweat can be as, as powerful as tears. Mm -hmm. in many ways, especially for like your maybe hyper-masculine that doesn't want to cry. Um, but you can kind of sweat out quite a bit of trauma and start to, to process it. So that was the first time that I made the real true neural connection between my health and my mental, my mental health and ability to process with my time spent in nature. So then that encouraged me to start in getting involved with more outdoor programs where other veterans or other military members work. Cause I, I said, Hey, if this works for me, maybe we can start getting it to work for other friends. Um, and you know, it was always informal. It was just me saying, Hey, I'm going to go up and hike a peak. Would you like to come with me? And what I would do is I would watch my friends at first. It was not on purpose, but over time I really started to pay more attention to how these tough military guys and sometimes women would react and they would go from just wanting to talk about only surface level things. And then after a few hours in nature without any probing or like encouragement by me, they were opening up and telling me about their dating life or their family life or the, their fears. And that was the beginning of this string that I'm still pulling on today about what can time in nature do for these kind of tough, uh, hardened, protected military members in helping them open up and like reveal their true selves and tap into their higher, their higher energies. And I just love that. I love, I mean, I've noticed that on my own life. I mean, I, the hiking is such a, a great time. It's kind of like when I'm driving with my, with my kids in a dark car, like they'll tell me stuff that they would otherwise never mention. And, you know, um, climbing down from something usually it's on the downslope of something is when some really great conversations i feel like just just arise and 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 being in nature seems to be a really important part of that and so you have have you formalized this program now no no everything i've done has been informal uh until i got to the air force academy and that was a that was a so so let's go back a little bit we started off in 2005, shortly after that plane crash, and I approached the U.S. military and I said, hey, um, I've had this idea for some time now, and I think we should get a military mountaineering team together. Other nations have them. Several allies like the British, Australians, and the Canadians have official outdoor programs that are focused on mental health and resiliency. And I, and I, here I am a young officer in 2005. And I said, Hey, what do you guys think about? Let's start this. I'll help lead it. And they just kept telling me, you, what are you talking about? No one's ever done this in the U S military. And it, therefore, since it doesn't exist already, then we can't make it happen. And I said, well, why not? And they said, well, it's not in the regulations. And basically there's no, there's no, there's no foundation to make it happen. And I, I just, that wasn't an okay answer to me. And I said, okay, so you're telling me we can't officially do this? And they said, no. And then I said, well, I'm going to do it on my own. And they're <laughs> like, well, I don't know. Can you do that? And I said, watch me. And so I ended up uh, creating a 501c19, which is a nonprofit. But the C19 part we found deep in the IRS documents is a war veterans organization. And it gave us a good tax status and, and, uh, I called it the Air Force Seven Summits Challenge. And I, and, and I was like, you know what? We're going to get outside. We're going to climb the highest mountain on every continent. And we're going to do it as a way to not just boost camaraderie, but to also build up mental health and our physical health. 
And, you know, almost immediately I got messages from military lawyers telling me, you can't do this. You're using the word USAF in your title and you're not an official organization. But then I found out that there was plenty of um, precedence for that and I stuck with it. And so it seemed like at every turn, the government was, they never said it was a bad idea. They just didn't want to accept the risk. Um, but starting in 2005, we started climbing uh, one mountain every year and we would do a lot of military, pr- I, I, we'd do independent like press. We would try to get newspapers and TV to follow it. And at first, you know, they just thought we were nobody that was trying to do something historic. But after we climbed two or three peaks, the government and the the news media started to really recognize that we were serious. And even like Outside Magazine uh, put us in like our top 100 important ideas and people of, I think that was like 2006. And so we independently just kept doing it because if Uncle Sam wasn't ready to, to make it something serious and official, that wasn't going to stop us. Um, and we kept pushing and pushing until 2013 when we climbed the highest, our team climbed the highest mountain, right? Mount Everest. And that made us the the first and only at the time team to attempt the seven summits and actually complete them. And the first U S military team to climb or attempt and to climb Everest. Um, so yeah, I, I kept it informal, Avin, because I, I just, I wasn't going to wait for someone to say, okay, you have our blessing to make this happen. Um, one of the shames I would say of that is we lost a lot of opportunity for research. We could have been doing um, quantitative and qualitative research on the different people that, you know, they're before and before a climb. How do you feel about your wellness and your resiliency, and maybe your, your skills to overcome stress? and compare that to them after these big, like two month long expeditions. Um, but you know, a few years went by and then now I'm at the air force Academy and I'm not going to, you know, I'm not allowed to do something that big, but we did start bringing in a bit more out outdoor focused education. And it was really more focused on leadership and risk taking communication, but we did start to, actually do real full-blown research on how time and nature and in a team setting can affect emotional intelligence. So slight, a slight deviation from my, my main focus, but, you know, I, I think back to your question, did we ever solidify it, make it, make it a hundred percent legit? No, it was, it was just, we're doing what we could. Cause remember we're in between combat. Every mountain we were climbing was in between combat missions we didn't really have a lot of time to formalize this and to ask for sponsorship. It was, I remember once I was in Kandahar, Afghanistan, and it was close to 120 degrees. It was so hot that day. And after flying a mission all night, I went through the, like the really hot weather and then got onto a computer and I started writing a few friends around the, around the world about an upcoming climb in Antarctica. So it's 120 outside. <laughs> We're in Afghanistan and we're already making our plans to go to Antarctica where we're expecting potentially minus 20 to minus 40 degree temps. Well, and Rob, when I hear you talk, I mean, to create change, especially from inside a box and a, and a box, a pretty big box being the U.S. military, right? Um, I just find it fascinating that you were able to achieve what you achieved and that Sometimes to create change, right? If you wait to go until everything is signed and dotted and sealed, I mean, you'd be dead. Yeah, <laughs> so. it would never happen. And it's just it, that's what I remind people is you don't need a hundred percent solution to get off and follow your dreams. You just you need even just a forty percent solution and just start trying and innovating. Um, I'll tell you what I think was maybe one of the keys to this success because it's still ongoing. We can talk about where we are now, but. Let's go back to where it all truly started. And this is not a story I share very often because I just think most people would go over their head. Mm-hmm. But in 2001, when I graduated the Air Force Academy, I'd already fallen in love with mountaineering thanks to my time here in the Rockies and climbing the 14,000 foot peaks. And um, I, when you graduate the academies, they give you generally two months of time off because you don't get a whole lot of time when you're a cadet during your four years to get out and travel. 
So a lot of students love to go out when they graduate and, and go on big adventures. And I, I had this feel draw. I wanted to go to um, the Himalayas and visit Nepal. And I asked all my friends, hey, who wants to go on like a three or four week trip to Nepal with me? We'll, we'll like go river rafting. We'll explore. We'll go up to the Himalayas. And nobody, they all thought it was just a little too much, a little too intense. But I still wanted to go. And I went. And at times, I just thought it was one of the greatest adventures, like riding around on buses on the roof and meeting random people. But at other times, I, I felt pretty lonely because I was sleeping like, I, I think I went in June. And that's when the monsoon begins. So it's usually pretty bad weather. Most, most people don't go that time of year. So it was very, it felt very isolating. But as I got up near the top of um, the trail leading to Everest Base Camp, I finally got my first view of Mount Everest. And we're actually very close to Everest at this point. I'm kind of actually at the base of it, looking up the Kumbu Icefall, which is like a frozen waterfall. There wasn't a single person or tent, <coughs> excuse me, in Everest Base Camp. So it was completely deserted, which is a, a eerie feeling. And I looked up at the mountain and I'd always thought it was crazy. I mean, like suicidal to try to climb something like Everest. It just, I had no interest in it. But as I looked up the mountain and the clouds cleared for just a brief period of time, I could see its big black uh, pyramid shaped face. And I just was in awe. I mean, I looked truly in awe. And I got the strangest message of Ian. And, and I, it wasn't a voice. It wasn't a voice, but it was like this sense this um, it was just a truth I felt inside my body. And it, it was like the mountain told me, come back and climb me, but for something bigger than yourself. Mm. So here I am, I'm 21 years old. I've, I've climbed a bunch of peaks that are above 14,000 feet, but I have no mountaineering training. It's just kind of been a hobby. And I'm at the base of Mount Everest. It's just me and, and the Sherpa that was helping me get up there and get back. And I get this download. I get this message from the mountain that says, come back to me. I'm inviting you, but you've got to do it for something greater than yourself. And that, that's, what, that's what like stewed in my mind from 2001 until 2005 when I finally said, okay, we're going to climb the highest mountain on every continent, ending in Everest. We're going to build up all of our skills so we're ready for the big one. And when I got to the base of Everest in 2013 and ready to climb it, there was no question of being, in fact, the entire time, the, over all the years, I always knew the mountains had invited us to do this. Like if Everest is the biggest mountain, she is. she's known as uh, Chomolonga, which is goddess mother earth. That is what the Tibetan and Nepalese call her. So if she can invite us, I felt kind of like we had like a, a first class ticket right. to success, right? Like, like she, she's the one that prodded me. And then I just trusted that every risk we took, that somehow a door would open along the way. And it, it, every, every door opened that needed to open to make it a success. That is just thrilling. And it's, and that, that happens, you know, that was a huge moment, but I'm sure it's happened more than once to you, maybe not as dramatically, but the more that we, that we connect in reverence, like you talked about to the earth, the more that she is speaking to us at all, at all times, mm. right? There's that communication can be, um, can be so open if we allow it. Oh yeah. I, um, Okay, here's another good one that you'll like this. So I, uh, I didn't know anything about yoga until I started training for Mount Everest, probably around 2012, 2013. And like, I think I went to like a um, Gold's gym. I was, in a I was in a military assignment in North Texas, just not a very yoga-y area in right. Amarillo. And I remember going to like this weightlifting place where there was a cute, yoga instructor. And I was like, Hey, I'll <laughs> learn yoga. Sure. You will. And I, yeah, sure. And I found how much I loved it, but I was really a novice by the time I went to Everest. I'd only practiced a few times. <clears throat> and then, um, so we're on Mount Everest and, and we spent, uh, 57 days 
traveling to Nepal, climbing the mountain and coming back. So it was a two month long trip. Mm. And what's really taxing about being on Mount Everest is that it, once you get to base camp, you're almost at 18,000 feet. So it's high. And you spend, we spent 45 days at 18,000 feet and above. So it's just so hard on your body. It's exhausting. And the trick, the biggest trick on Everest and these tall mountains is not to get sick or injured because generally you've already trained, you're ready to go. You know, you just need to let your body acclimate to the altitude, but not lose energy and muscle mass while you're, you know, there's like this fine line between prepping and running out of draining yourself and running out of energy. Cause you can't really build up energy, um, generally above 18,000 feet. So after let's say, you know, 35, 40 days go by, we get the green light that after all of our prepping, the weather's finally good. We're going to go to the top. So we leave 18,000 feet. We work our way through the ice fall. We get up to camp two, which is at like 22,000 feet. And on the way up, um, one of our Sherpas had been sick and Anyway, it definitely got, it got one of my best friends who lives in the Springs here with me. He and I were playing cards in a tent, like the day before we were going to move up to the death zone and he was coughing and he's like, man, I just don't feel very good. I was like, "Uh Oh, I don't feel very good either. I remember this was two days before we left. So, um, we're like, "Uh Oh, if we get sick, we're in big trouble. So, um, we all go to bed that night. And then when we wake up in the morning at 22,000 feet, our last rest day before going, uh, pushing towards the summit, um, I wake up and I feel sick and he's definitely feeling sick. And so we're like, okay, well, we're sick. And again, this is one of those beautiful moments where I remember looking up at the summit of, of Everest. She's now only. 7,000. So she's a mile above us, like the very top, but we're really close. So close. I can hear the winds blowing across the upper mountain. And I just remember looking to her and thinking to myself, like, how could I come this far? And then, you know, you invited me here and for me to get sick. And I was called to start doing some yoga poses. Remember, this is a novice, Rob, and also a very, a little bit hyper-masculine in that, like, I don't want, I was very embarrassed to even make a yoga pose in public, mm-hmm. but I started to just do like mountain pose. And then to do like sun salutations as I'm staring at this, at this big, cold, dangerous mountain face. And I probably did yoga in the sunshine there for 20 or 30 minutes. And every move I did and every breath I took just filled me with so much more energy and made me just feel so real and alive. Um, and the next morning I woke up and I felt like a million dollars. I was absolutely fine. And my other friend sadly had gotten much sicker and he ended up having, he, he tried to go to the summit with us 24 hours later and had to turn around. Otherwise it would have absolutely killed. He would have died. He was Mm. barely had enough energy to even leave the upper camp. Um, but I'm telling you what, Avine, there's something about when you connect with nature, there's like, as you said, there's no medium, there's no in-between. It's this raw connection to the energy of earth, of Gaia, but also to our true, our souls. And I think when I did that yoga there, it was just an opportunity for the mountain to just come in and, and breathe fresh air into my lungs and to make sure that I was absolutely fit and healthy the next day. Yeah. And what I hear in that story too, Rob, is a sense of humility, a sense of like, I'm a beginner, right? I don't know, but, but also following your knowing. Like, I think that, um, that each of us are so much, we have so much more innate wisdom within us than we're led to believe. And that seems like a really clear moment where you had a knowing and yeah, it was a little, you know, you were with all these um, climbers and there was a little maybe bit of embarrassment, but you got over that and you did something that sounds so simple that, you know, someone listening might be like, what, that didn't really do anything, but it did like for you, it, it allowed you to summit Everest, which is no small feat. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to know that one of my closest friends who was like living in the same tent with me 
got very sick and I could feel the sick. Usually when I, you know, you know, when you've got like a, a sore throat, you're like, okay, I'm getting sick. <clears throat> and for it to disappear while the other person gets sick. Um, I, I just still feel like that, that time in the, in nature and just being, as you said, humble and vulnerable, um, opened me up to some really powerful healing. And, and I think that's maybe part of the magic behind my dream of getting more service members into nature is the vulnerability that often comes with time in these giant awe-inspiring settings. It's almost like your personality gets just almost fades away. You're the protective closed off parts of us that, you know, are, are, are innate protectors that come from childhood. They, they seem to just lose their power or they almost like give it up because they realize they're in a safe space when they're in nature. And then I think that allows people to start verbalizing their fears and, and their, their emotions. Um, it lets them know that other people are just like them. And they also, we all share the same problems and the same fears. And, um, we have also, we've all, we often share many of the same hurts and injuries that, mm -hmm. that someone might think, Oh, I'm alone. But it seems like once you get in nature and you start talking about it, you realize how much we all have in common. So there's like a salve about being in nature that eases these protective layers that so many of us humans walk around with on a daily basis. Yeah. It's like we're stripped away of the, the sense of control and our things and our, maybe even our, our roles and our, our hierarchy when you're talking about military um, to some degree. And yeah, we're just, we belong to something that's larger than ourselves. And, and it's in that belonging that, that connections are more easily seen connections, Agreed. Ourselves, connections between each other. Um, and when I, you see the, when you see the perfection in nature, mm -hmm. right? Like the way the cycle of life occurs that there's, again, there's no malice in the way that a predator eats its prey. And it's just, it's the cycle of life. And when you see that um, the way just the sun rises and the sunsets and the stars, I, I think it, it does, it reminds us all that we are part of something much bigger and that we don't have to hold on so tightly. Like if you let go a little bit in life of your emotions and your protection, you're not going to just fall off the planet. You're not going to die. You actually have a place in nature. Whereas in outside in Western society, you've got to fight for your place. It, it always feels like the plate where you need to be or where you should be is, is, is always one step further. It's very hard to be in your place in this society. The moment you drop into nature, that's not true. Not the moment. Uh, the research will often, you and I talked about this a little bit earlier um, before we started this podcast, but there is good solid research that says after 72 hours in nature, your body kind of gets into a coherent flow with the energy of the outdoors. Your heart rate drops, your heart rate variability goes up, your stress hormones like cortisol go down. That's when you become, you know, your place, like you are, you're happy in your place. I can tell you what though, like after 72 hours back in the West, you know, a lot of that gets re reversed. Um, and I think it's even worse when you're in the military because there is a very strong hierarchy and there is a very strong a set of expectations. Um, so my dream is that we experiment and research what are the right doses of nature? Uh, how do we prescribe nature preventatively? That's, I think that's where we should go with the, the rest of our, our talk is the my real dream for the military is how do we use nature as a booster shot to inoculate our, our men and women in uniform and even our first responders, our, our frontline nurses and doctors, the people that are going to see traumatic stress, mm -hmm. how do we inoculate them before tragedy strikes? Because I'll tell you what, there's a lot of veterans organizations that get military veterans into the outdoors. But so many of them have already been traumatized. So many of them have already been diagnosed with PTSD or depression or have tried to take their lives or have 
negative coping skills like uh, drug use, alcoholism, withdrawal, you know, overusing video games. My, the dream here is how do we prevent all of those negative coping skills and experiences by inoculating with nature? Like that's, and that's, there's so much money to be saved and so many lives to be improved if we can get ahead of the traumatic, you know, I- injury. Yeah. I mean, it's thrilling in its simplicity. I mean, it's, it's thrilling to think that, um, that much of the burnout, I mean, you know, I'm in the medical profession and, and levels of burnout, I don't think have ever been higher. Um, and it's sometimes I, I, it's the same when I kind of preach on, uh, stillness or pausing or meditation. It's sometimes these really simple, they're so simple that we, we think they can't work, right? Because it needs to cost a lot of money or be complicated. Um, you know, we often think that, but, but this idea of, of boosting resiliency by creating habits that really are just bringing us back to ourselves and our natural state as part of the planet. I mean, it, you know, it would be healing and preventative for, for lots of things, but it would also be really healing for the earth because the way that you speak about reverence for the earth is also so lacking in our world right now. And it's, it's Mm. maybe the cause of the downfall of our beautiful mother Gaia. So it's so important on so many different levels um, that I really imagine, imagine if the money that we spend, we spend billions with a capital B just on veteran mental health and the veteran and veterans in general, like that are disabled or unable to work as much as, as necessary. What happens if we took a small portion of that and proactively spent the money for healthy individuals in nature? Like the way I see it is we are now funding our state parks. We're helping fund our national parks we're helping pay for the ma and pa outfitters and guide companies that would be leading our young military and, and first responders out there. So not only are we developing their skill sets, and when I say skill sets, I mean like how do you overcome the challenges that nature all nature always throws challenges at us? It could be bad weather, it could be a scary, challenging, you know. Um, river raft or, you know, going outside your comfort zone, which is if you can go outside your comfort zone and then come back, you're, you're practicing resiliency. Um, but how cool would it be if at the same time we're developing citizens that want to vote to protect the, to protect nature and we're spending government money on our own backyard in our backyard, instead of prescribing medication and, you know, spending all and put it just paying people to like, you know, sit at home because they're devastated from the trauma. Instead, we're putting that money to like protecting Gaia, to connecting people to it and making lifelong lovers of the outdoors. Mm-hmm. It, it makes it's, it. I see it. I see it. And I know we can do it. Um, the trick at this point, though, and I have been working with the Department of Defense. I've also been working with some private uh, folks too on how do we go about um, collecting research to show, because that's what Uncle Sam wants to know. If I give you uh, eight hours with a service member, with an art, with a soldier or a sailor or an airman or a Marine, how do I know that that time in nature is going to make them more resilient? And it's a great question, right? And it's important. We need to show that time and money is, there's a, re- a return on investment. And I've already pitched some great ideas. Uh, um, I, I once actually got it all approved, all the way up to an undersecretary of uh, the Air Force, like a top, a top, you know, appointee. And then COVID hit and we lost, we lost our little opportunity. And I'm trying again. And, and you know, we're talking very small amount of money. We're talking about a very small amount of risk, but it's just like when we started the seven summits challenge, the feedback is this has never been done before. You know, do we want to risk, do we want to risk like going out on a limb and trying this? Um, and that's the battle that we're facing right now is how do we, how do we try something novel 
especially when I keep using the word nature, 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 it's not a word that's often used in the Pentagon. Um, no, but I would say, Rob, your level of enthusiasm, your level of connection with the natural world and the support. I mean, we can look back at your experience with, with Everest when you were 21. Like, I do believe that the universe conspires to help us. And it really seems like you're the man to, um, along hopefully with many other people that will line up beside you. And maybe someone listening to this podcast will have a great idea on, you know, there's so many novel ways that research is being done right now. I mean, I've been going to Joe Dispenza events and the medical research that they're being able, you know, that they're showing there with major, um, with major state universities. I mean, it's only a matter of time, right? Before what we know in our hearts and what's ancient spiritual tradition showed us and what the earth shows us, we'll be able to translate that into something that is deemed worthy by you know, government or medicine or whatever. And so my hope, my prayer is that you stick with this because your journey is so fascinating to me and it's, it's nowhere near finished. No, we're not finished. And, and you, there's nothing that's going to stop me. Um, when I run into a roadblock in the government, I just generally have to go into nature, right? Maybe <laughs> yell a little, I got to burn off some energy. Cause I, with all of my my energizer bunny bunny energy, it's easy for that to sometimes turn sour and frustrated. Mm -hmm. But I find that when I get back into nature, uh, it's almost like a John Muir experience where it just talks about like my, my worries fall off, like leaves, you know, falling in, in like the autumn leaves and just, they just, they drop off and I can just reabsorb that positive energy in the sun. And I, I know it's going to work. We're, we're surrounded by a planet full of nature that is just beckoning. It's just calling for every human to come and spend time with it. And it is a source of such great, powerful medicine. And, and it's not just a medicine of healing. And that's the real thing I want to like to run with is it can also be a medicine of development and growth. So that way, when you do face that traumatic experience, you already have an existing resource that you know you tapped into it when you were healthy, you developed your healthy habits. And now that you're feeling like divorce hit or your friend died or you have financial hardship or you're just feeling shitty, you already have this existing resource right outside. Maybe it's right outside your door. Maybe you got to drive to it or fly to it. But I mean, we are surrounded. We are literally surrounded by healing energy. Um, and growth-driven energy. It's just we need to tap into it before we're in trouble. And nothing's going to stop me from bringing that to Uncle Sam because I think it will not only save money, but it'll also make our military healthier and it will save lives. It will help drive down the number of service members and veterans that kill themselves. I'm, I'm, there's no question about it in my mind. Yeah, I, I see that too. And, and Rob, I just want to... Um... I want to say thank you to you for the work that you've done, for the lives that you have changed and and for you know, for trying to be this change maker from within. Cuz I think it's so, you know, I'm seeing it in medicine too, like people just diving out of the profession, right? They just there's just so much burnout, they're so overwhelmed that, you know, they're leaving. And so I think it takes great courage and great resilience to just be the be the change maker from within in these organizations where they're saying this thing is basic as nature is healing. Like there's, where's the evidence? Show me the numbers, right? <laughs> um, but staying in and, and fighting that fight is, I think, I mean, it's, it's so clear. It's going to help so many people. And then the trickle down effect, like we always talk about, right? It's not just affecting the people that you take up the mountain, it's affecting their family members, their coworkers, their friends. And so this is how these ripple effects, this is how we create a new world, a new reality. Yeah, here, here. And I, I want to see our taxpayer money, you know, trickle down into the parks and into the, the people that are, that are passionate about guiding and teaching and equipping uh, it really, it just seems like a win-win of being for everybody. And whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, whether you're um, 
pro-military or you're a total, you know, absolutely pacifist, everybody can get behind making healthier service members that are connected to nature and that are using our national natural our national and our natural resources together. It's, it's win-win. So we're going to get there. And, um, I'm grateful for the experience. I'm grateful that I haven't, I'm grateful that I've, I've been filled up with so many awe inspiring moments. I, I think I have a lifetime of energy reserves that, you know, even I get depressed, even I get worn out. And then it's, it's just like, um, it just takes a few breaths, a few moments of, meditation and mindfulness to like, just realize that no, 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 really deep inside. I've, I've been gifted so many lifetimes of, of memories and joy that I'm ready to spend it all while I can, you know, here on the planet. And, um, yeah, it's been really fun. It's been fun too. And I'm happy to share this with you too. And I hope if, if people want to learn more about it, they could reach out to me. Uh, if, if they're interested in just reading anything about our history, um, they could visit, just type in Air Force Seven Summits into any search engine and you'll see some really fun videos and articles about our climbing that, that started in 2005 all the way to Everest. We just uh, went to Denali, the highest point in North America, up in Alaska in, in May and June of 2021, which I was going to say this year, but that was, you know, it's, it's, we're already back into 2022 now. But if uh, there's some really fun videos and stories about that. We took some veterans up and some service members that have dealt with really big setbacks. And our next project is to create a documentary based on the seven summits and all the work and to tell the story that you and I just talked about. How, how did this help us overcome 20 years of combat? And how can we use it to then support the next generation of service members and first responders? Um, that's going to take a while to do because I'm a pilot. I'm not a, I'm not a film producer, but I'm learning bit by bit. And I'm really excited to hopefully bring that to life uh, in this year. I just love it, Rob. I, I don't know about those listening, but I just feel really full up with enthusiasm and hopefulness. And um, I'm again, it's just been so wonderful to talk to you. My prayer is that someone listening is, is meant to connect with you in some way um, to help further this amazing work that you're doing. And I'm sure in the future, I hope to have you back on and hear about, hear about the latest adventures. So thank you so much for your time and your energy, your enthusiasm and your love for this earth. I'm really grateful to know that you are here. Uh, thank you, Avin. Namaste. I appreciate it. Namaste.